Escape from Plan A. Welcome to uh, Escape from Plan A. Uh, this is your host, Teen, and uh, got uh, another Twitter. It's like we do these episodes where, you know, someone who, like, I follow on Twitter and and we get um, – this happens on Twitter all the time, but, like, you know, we, we'll, we'll see, I'll see an account. And you know how – you know how, like, some accounts will just start kind of aggl- congl- agglomerating into sort of what we would call China Twitter? Um, uh <laughs> The Daily Mao. Uh, how's it going, man? Hey, you know, great to great to be on your show, Teen. Uh, thanks so much for uh, thanks so much for having me, and uh, really appreciate what you uh, you and the uh, broader folks at Plan A are doing. As oh, thanks. Yeah. Um, can, can, do you want to just like intro the the account because there's a little bit of a conceit behind the Daily Mao and 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 what it what it is because it's a little bit of an irony account. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so got, I got inspired to start doing the Daily Mail after, uh, reading a couple of articles from the Daily Mail. Um, and, uh, th- this was back in like June, like May and June of last year. Um, and, uh, and this was sort of on the after, like in the aftermath of a lot of reporting on Chinese people's culinary habits, um, in eating habits and how they, uh, how it if, how it was like a driver in uh, in COVID, yeah. Um, and I just started thinking, my God, this reporting is terrible. So what if what if I just like made a parody account of that, yeah? Um, and sort of starting from that conceit, uh, you know, the accounts started. We started broadening into a couple of different topics. Um, I myself am very keenly interested in the technological competition between the U S and China and to a lesser degree also interested in kind of the geoeconomics and the financial, the international financial situation, uh, centered on the U S dollar system and you know, how China affects that. So, mm-hmm. so those are, those are kind of the topics that I spend most of my time, you know, tweeting about, uh, uh from a serious perspective, but, mm-hmm. uh, you know, otherwise, uh, the, the bulk of that account is really just a parody of, call it like, you know, broader mainstream media outlets in the West and how they cover China. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to the economics shortly, uh, which I guess was what we want to cover in the pod. But like, I noticed like two things. One is, uh, I've definitely know like when you say May or June is like when you started it, that to me was like one of the big effects of like what, you know, all the, the sort of dominance of China China in the news, like as a, as a subject of the news because of coronavirus. And I feel like China Twitter sort of was created almost out of that. Like so many people and so many accounts are starting to kind of come together into something. I don't I don't think it's very big or anything, but it is like like it's there. It exists. Yeah. Cuz I yeah. see other people referencing China Twitter now. And I was like, was this even a thing before coronavirus? No, not at all. And and I right. think it's it's like people are both interested in it. One, right. COVID just made people more interested in the topic. And then two, I think a lot more Chinese people became aware of how they were being discussed and decided that, Hey, being like the invisible minority, uh, it was no longer, no longer, you know, doable. Right. 
Yeah, and the other thing was like it, to the extent your account is um or was an experiment, I feel like the results have been you've pissed a lot of people off with the irony. Like it it it, oh, it yeah. kind of shows like if you just sort of reframe, you know, because I've seen you do this. Like there'll be um, a headline about something that happens like in Europe or in America, and you'll you'll use a uh, you'll use the type of biased headline that would have been used had that event happened in China. Oh yeah. Right? Oh yeah. There, like, there you are... know, so, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, please continue. No, but I mean, people get, seem to get triggered. Like a lot of people seem to get triggered by what you're doing it, which is kind of falling for the trap, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, there are people who say like, um, like there, there is an account uh, who tweeted, uh, obviously somebody who's Chinese, but who's, uh, who didn't agree with, you know, the political angle. And he's like, right. It was basically like, yeah, I saw what Daily Mao is tweeting and I think he's hopeless. Right. Mm. Um, and then another account says tankies such as Daily Mao and his ilk are in fact dangerous. Right. (laughs) Um, just last month. Right. Oh, like, uh, like the, uh, the Daily Mao is a fascist account that's engaged in targeted harassment. Um, uh, it's, it's great because like, half of it looks like half of like half of the people who, who who don't like this account are think i'm a fascist and the other half think i'm like a you know a com, I'm sort of a tanky or like a hardline communist yeah i, I don't think i'm either of that but uh uh-huh. it's, it's it's kind of amusing to see see the epithets get get wrong or because yeah, you're just mail, holding right? in a way you're just holding up a mirror <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it's it's amazing. It's fan mail, right? It's it's fan mail. It's it's fun. It's fun to read. Yeah, and it's. I mean, I don't know. I mean, like to me, when I first saw your account, I was like, "This is clearly an irony account." I mean, um, I think. Let me see. I'm just pulling your account up uh, real quick. Because, um, like, the way you describe it, it, okay, so it's everyone. You know, what if China didn't have censorship? No one, and spawn a newspaper as fact free and trashy as the Daily Mail, right? Me hold my baijiu like that. That that says it all. It's just like I'm. I'm just going to do headlines that sound exactly like the ones that I'm reading in you know uh, the Daily Mail or, or or whatever Western paper that that's been reporting about bat soup. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> anyway. So okay. So but that's not the point of this uh, pod. You you reached out. We well we were DMing and you said that you had a real interest in um, the sort of economics and finance um and how that intersects with china and i feel like that's probably like one of the biggest stories in finance and economics in world history probably Mm -hmm. and um i think i mean i definitely like i'm super interested in in that topic and i tweet about it more than i talk about it like on the pod because i don't consider myself like an expert in this stuff at all like i think a lot of it is me and some other people i know like trying to learn it as we go along so uh, to the extent you want to discuss this, I think it's going to be more of us, the two of us trying to figure stuff out than any sort of like, here, let me share my expertise. But um, yeah, I mean, I can uh, probably start from there. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But what, what, uh, cause you had mentioned, I think something about, uh, cause I, I, I had this, I went on Daniel Dumbrell's uh, uh, video, pod, his YouTube channel. And we had been discussing um, the GameStop stuff, but then we kind of dipped a little bit into stuff about like the digital yuan, the use, you know, the use of the or the American monopoly on the on the financial system, uh, things like that. 
And I don't know if, if, if it was one of those things that you thought was a jumping off point to some topic you wanted to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 you know, what, what got me very interested in this topic was like this very kind of strange disconnect that I, I noticed like a long, long time ago. So, so the IMF has voting rights, right. Um, and, uh, they're, they're like, they're, they're calculated according to some formula. Uh, you know, it's like 50% of the voting rights come from, a, uh, the country's, you know, percentage of GDP in the world. Um, you know, then like some 25% comes from like their Forex reserves and then another like 25% comes from other, some, a couple of other macro indicators, right? Um, China only has 6% voting rights in the IMF. Uh, but if you use that formula to actually calculate China's voting rights, it should be like 14%. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just started getting curious. I was like, why is China's percentage like artificially capped? And it turns out that like ever since like 2013, 14, the U.S. has been artificially deferring or like delaying any sort of IMF like rebalancing of its own voting rights. Right. Mm-hmm. And trying to keep China's percentage like capped. Um, and is this like in terms of like voting for governance, that kind of thing? Yeah. Yeah. Voting for mm-hmm. governance. And kind of the, crit- the critical thing is because 85 percent of IMF members by voting rights must agree to any sort of change in the IMF charter or must mm-hmm. agree to any any election of like the person who runs the IMF. W- was it 85% you said? Yeah, yeah. And I'm going to guess the U.S. has veto rights then because it probably has... The U.S. has 15.6. Ah, so, <laughs> Exactly. You see what <laughs> I mean? That can be easily guessed, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, so you start seeing like, oh, like the U.S. holds veto rights over the world financial system mm-hmm. um, and it artificially like games that system to try and like, you know, keep China from actually having its relative relevant seat at the table. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then this was also in the context of like, Hey, the U S like protesting a lot about China setting up the Asian infrastructure investment bank, viewing mm-hmm. like, uh, viewing the belt and road initiative as like an assault on the U S dollar system. And I started thinking, well, you know, maybe, maybe if the U S had just let China have its, you know, have its proportionate voting rights at the IMF, China wouldn't have to go and do all these things. But, then again, that's that's just me being an idealist, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, regarding the U.S. financial system, it's it's kind of hard to describe. It's kind of hard to uh, figure out whether you should call it the global financial system or the U.S. financial system or just ah. the dollar financial system. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, it wasn't until um, it wasn't until the past couple years that I started realizing how abusive the U.S. had become in terms of the, the, the fact. It's, it's a fact that the U.S. financial system or the dollar financial system basically uh, is the world financial system. Mm-hmm. And you, you basically can't affect payments or do any sort of financial transactions in the world without tripping up jurisdiction to uh US law enforcement and US courts. Yeah. And yeah. like the arrest of uh Meng Wanzhou. uh Meng like that that was it's this the um you know the woman in Canada who's been stuck in legal limbo for the past two two years almost three years I think I think two years. Yeah. Um you know I always marvel at how she ended up in jail pending um you know her uh pending extradition into the United States. I mean, she, from what I understand, had um, affected a payment from 
uh, Hua or a subsidiary of Huawei, which is based in China, to uh, a company in Iran through um, HSBC, which is a British bank that's banked that's based in Hong Kong, and she was arrested in Canada as she was en route to, I believe, Mexico. Mm-hmm. So none of that has anything to do with the United States. It's a Chinese company with a subsidiary uh, in Iran. Payment was affected through a British bank in Hong Kong. She was arrested in Canada as she was flying to Mexico. All of it has nothing to do with the United States. It's somehow she finds herself in jail pending extradition for violating U.S. law. And that just shows you what kind of net the U.S. financial system has thrown around the world and is kind of used as basically uh, giving the U.S. worldwide jurisdiction over all pretty much everything. It's really shocking yeah. to me. Um, so so you, you want like so, – so one – are you aware of the name Stuart Levy? L-E-V-E-Y? I've heard of that name, but I'm not sure why. Ah, ah. Mm-hmm. He was the guy who came up with the net. He wove the net. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. And, and guess mm-hmm. where he was working in January 2012? Tell me. HSBC. He was oh, the really? Chief, he was the chief okay. legal officer at the bank. Okay. Uh-huh. Ah. And, mm-hmm. and that, was, uh, that was right around the time Mo Manjo was actually giving those presentations um, to uh, HSBC, right? Yeah. Um, so, so it's kind of you, – you could – I don't know if that's like entrapment, <laughs> but <laughs> it does seem kind of, kind of fishy. But like the, 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 the sort of net that you describe – it was really honed back in 04, 05. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the first time they, they applied it against like nation states. I mean, they started going after- Yeah, like after the, the uh, OFAC sanctions list. Yeah, yeah. That, that, like OFAC sanctions existed before, but they were applied mostly to terrorists and not mm-hmm. like countries. Um, yeah. But that in 04, 05, I think they went after this bank in Macau called Banco mm-hmm. Delta Asia, if I remember, remember their name correctly. And uh, Sue Levy- uh, as the uh, deputy, as the uh, sort of undersecretary for terrorism and financial intelligence within the U.S. Department of Treasury at the time, was the one who actually uh, spearheaded that effort, right, and and created that mechanism. Yeah, I mean, I I started noticing this too when I was in China. Um, I think a, I think the last time I went, um, which was 2019, and there was this book. Um, by a French businessman. I think his last name is Piaget. I forgot his first name, but it's called the, the American uh, Alstom guy, right? Yes. Yes. Uh, and um, he wrote a book called the American trap. Yeah. And it was pretty much, um, and I think it was very, it was quite popular in China. I saw it in a lot of bookstores and it had been translated into Chinese actually before it was translated into English. And uh, though it's now available in America too. But it, it's it, and and he was uh, I, I don't know the full story, but I know that he was an executive of right Alstom, which is, is which is um, sort of a transportation company based in France, right? Or is it? Uh, but they had like an energy um, uh, division, I guess, like nuclear energy or something like that. And uh, I don't know the specifics of like what happened, but I know that he ended up in prison in the United States, and Alstom was essentially forced to sell its business to like GE or. Mm-hmm. Some other U.S. G- company, G- GE, and, right? Yeah, and and and, and the, the laws he violated were a foreign corrupt or the F- FCPA, right? Foreign oh, corrupt. the FCPA. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And and um, he was. 
I think trying to make us I should read that book. I, I've been waiting for the English version to come out and it just came out. But um you know he see he seemed to be uh expressing you know quite a bit of anger on the part of Europeans about the way the US bullies them. And so I, I don't think this is just limited to China at all, right? I mean they got insane like I still think that arresting uh Meng was a oh very God, yeah crazy move that's a crazy move because you're essentially kidnapping someone's daughter is how is you know like the, the kidnapping the ceo's daughter oh, yeah and um it's just an insanely like aggressive move uh but it, it seems like these types of things have been done against europeans as well and then i think i heard on your pod with um carl carl Zha on on silk and steel uh, when you were talking about ASML, the the, the Dutch, uh, you know, the Dutch manufacturer of these f- machines that are used to make chips, essentially, uh, that there has been some like rumors that, or 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 I don't know if it's speculation or whatever, that the U.S. had actually sabotaged a Dutch company to prevent them from doing business with China. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that the room there was like a fire at one of the ASML suppliers. Um, right around the same time that that, uh, that Meng Wanzhou was arrested, so um, and and that prevented ASML from transacting an EUV machine into SMIC. Yeah, I mean the Europeans are not happy about this. I'm no guessing. one look, no one outside of like the US, maybe maybe Japan, maybe Taiwan is happy out of that. No one outside of that triangle is happy. Yeah, 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 um, yeah, and it kind of brings to mind like. Uh, I don't know if this is like the angle you want to get into, but like it kind of brings to mind how the um, the the Biden administration was pretty pissed off at the EU for signing that trade deal with mm-hmm. China, mm-hmm. and um, they came out. The, the Europeans came out and 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 said, I think the German trade minister came out and was just like, "Yeah, actually, the timing was intentional. We wanted to do this before Biden came into <laughs> into power," and he said, "Look." He said, uh, and I didn't know this until I started looking it up. He was like, this is not like, what, he's like, what is this deal, really, at the end of the day? All this deal is doing is catching Europe up to the uh, phase one trade deal that Trump had signed with China back last, the, the year before, or at the beginning of 2020, uh, 20, in January. So he's like, the Americans had already gone and signed this deal with China, uh, you know, a year back. And then now is upset us at us for deciding that we wanted the same terms, essentially. And I didn't know that. And I, I looked it up and it was like, yeah, the the um, the U.S. had signed essentially the same deal, uh, a similar kind of understanding, right? Like opening it up for uh, some asset management firms and financial services. And I think that was one of the key provisions. But there was one difference. The difference was the EU deal had language in there around you know human rights and stuff the US deal didn't include any of that they didn't they didn't throw any of that in but if i when i read the new york times coverage of it and stuff they would be like oh um uh, you know us human rights watch human rights watchers are very concerned about the europe deal <laughs> i'm like god I, I can't read a single story about china and just get disgusted by the layer upon layer of hypocrisy yeah yeah and, and, and honestly, like, let me, let me put it to you this way, right? Like you can, you can read like, like hypocrisy in the amount of hypocrisy that is present in a narrative 
is generally directly proportional to the um uh to the like to the uh how, how do i describe this to the disconnect between like reality and where they need that narrative to be right right yeah mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. you know i think what's bothering a lot of like like uh what, what's bothering a lot of western governments and you know other western well others you know power centers within like the broader western mix is that you know the reality of china is that it's a fairly benign uh you know economically focused rising power right mm -hmm. but the narrative that they need to the the tools that they have in hand to actually like push back on china are mostly concentrated in the military and in the media and uh and and as a result they need to like shift they need to like paint china as a villain in those two dimensions which means um which means constructing you know kind of a fairly artificial narrative about the country i mean benign yeah but i mean i think that one true aspect that i think is that i'm seeing reflected in the way americans talk about china is a, a growing awareness that america might be over reliant on china <laughs> that we've probably outsourced too much of our like critical production to china like we couldn't even make masks right but that's just the least of it and then there's all these stories now about how you know the port of los angeles and other west coast ports are completely choked mm -hmm. there's like despite the trade war which is still going on and all the tariffs and stuff we've never had this much uh you know these this much goods being imported from china and asia generally coming into the west coast they can barely squeeze uh they can barely get items through given given the the uh the sheer like volume of stuff coming in americans are buying it up and nothing's going the other way they said they're sending empty ships back or empty containers back mm -hmm. and uh it makes me wonder like um you know what's the real story about this economic coupling so to speak between the us and china like how how badly has this reliance uh become how bad has this reliance become where i'm not really sure that the that the us is in um any shape to think about decoupling from china or to <laughs> i'm not even sure why we're antagonizing china right now because it seems like if it weren't for the fact that you know they fixed their they got a, a handle on on covid pretty quickly and were able to open up the factories and the production if it weren't for that i feel like the America would be completely fucked. Like, where would we get everything from? Yeah, you know it, what I mean? It, it would look like 1973. It would right. look like the oil crisis. You'd have a massive aggregate supply shock. You'd probably have stagflation. Um, you'd probably, you know, the Fed would not have as much freedom to uh, lower interest rates as it does right now. You would have a mm -hmm. much longer, bumpier recovery. You'd have a lot more misery, right? So... Yeah, I mean, think about all the people who are buying, like all the companies and people who are buying, like, you know, laptop computers, webcams, you know, all the peripherals, et cetera, et cetera, for their home office. It's a huge crush of like new purchases. Mm -hmm. And if China had to shut down all its uh, factories because of COVID, prices would either, uh, prices and availability would just be, you know, at extremes. Yes. Yes. Right. People could not so, work from home. And then like you'd have problems. <laughs> you'd have real problems. 
right? Yeah, so you, it's like this thing where not only is the U.S. completely reliant on China, but it's also ex- it's also extremely pissed at China at China for this <laughs> for this weird state of affairs. And I'm like, you know, in this uh, we talked about this. This kind of has echoes of 2008 or post 2008, where you know the Chinese infrastructure stimulus essentially saved the world economy. Yeah, uh, and the net resulting attitude was seemed like the uh, a whole, you know, a large helping of resentment at China for doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't know, man. I I just have I just have a hard time wrapping my head around how we're going about this relationship. Um, yeah, I mean, it's... with China, and it's it's upsetting in a way because it's like, what? How how can these like misguided? attitudes lead to anything good like i don't know <laughs> what the path to some you know what i mean so here here's the thing right like one one funny thing i've started realizing and this is more like a meta comment around you know how how western politics is organized um you can think of like there is one difference between like the west and china right and like western and that's like western politics western politics is a is a free market where uh, entrepreneurs, we call them politicians, um, try to attract uh, users. They try to attract eyeballs, right? Uh, voters, right? Um, and they ch- they do this by championing championing uh, causes, and hopefully those causes are viral causes with broad traction among among the voters, right? So, like you know, to 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 like. To any now for for most of these entrepreneurs for most of these politicians some of these causes might be genuine right they might genuinely believe in what they're what they're espousing but in some cases um, there's a cause where you know kind of just a lot of people just glom onto it and just drive it up like a bubble right um, and I think there is like that kind of bubble that's happened around China right where like the the amount of hypocrisy and BS is so much. Uh, where like the threat inflation and like call it like the atrocity porn creation has been so much that like um, the rhetoric has to be extremely overheated in order for any politician to get attention on that topic, right? Like, because right now, like the whole US government has called China, accused China of genocide already, right? The whole US government has accused China of mass IP theft. The whole US government, you know, many people in the media think China like leaked COVID, right? Like, so these are like some pretty harsh things. And if you if you just simply say those things, you can't get like any incremental like voters, right? Um, so if in order to like rise above the fray, you have to like go one or two steps further. And that's, you know, that starts getting very scary, right? Because if you start going like past genocide, past like essentially accusing China of bioterror, like what is there, right? <laughs> Yeah, it's a ratchet action. It's like exactly. a one-way thing, right? One-way so every everyone thinks they're just like doing a little bit. Like I'll escalate it a little bit. Like recently, I saw, for example, the New York Times um, essentially claiming that Elaine Chao has interests that more are more aligned with China than with the United States, um, and this is the Democrats sort of lobbying back the Hunter Biden stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Um, saying that Hunter Biden was was paid by China, was paid under the table by Chinese, and it's another. That's just a small example of like how the the ratchet gets it gets ratcheted up a little bit every day, mm-hmm. right? Today we're going to say that Elaine Chow, this you know Trump's uh, Secretary of Transportation, uh, has you know ha- 
was kind of a Manchurian uh, cabinet member, you know, yeah, like yeah. and every day it's a little and you can't it's really hard to bring it, swing it back the other way. And I've seen people on Chinese Twitter, for example, trying to do it. But I mean, come on, like that's a drop in the ocean, you know, like the 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 overall momentum towards um, you know, vilifying China for basically all of our problems, in, not just COVID, but I think especially our um, economic problems, uh, is is a good way for particularly liberal Democrats right now, in my opinion, to hand wave away culpability in what has been the destruction of the American middle class. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that was allowing U.S. companies to uh, offshore capital and invest it abroad, not just in China, but a lot of it in China, it was their decision, right? Uh, and now they want to go around and blame China for allowing uh, investment into into China. It's, it's just weird. It's like, at what point does America take responsibility for its own actions here, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, you can blame a lot of things for the destruction of the middle class. I would probably say, like, you know, there there was, from like a policy perspective, though, like, none of the actions had anything to like were China's fault, right? Like it was not China's fault that the U.S. decided to go and go and do a, pursue a strategy of offshoring. Um, it was not China's fault that the U.S. decided to underinvest in its education system, so that you know the uh, so that U.S. workers were ill-equipped to you know to truly you know handle a knowledge economy. Um, they were underskilled for that. Um, it's not China's fault that you know the U.S. Uh, decided to um, inflate a housing bubble and then reinflate it again. Uh, to put housing out of the reach, out of reach for a majority of people who earned uh, earned wages in a, in high priced urban areas, right? It's not China's fault that like the U.S. has kept interest rates for as low uh, as low as they are for as long as they have. Um, that uh, you know, in order to that that have essentially created staggering amounts of wealth inequality, right? Like China decided upon none of these things, and yet like the popular anger about this economic outcome is being redirected onto China in a way that is pretty disingenuous, right? Totally disingenuous. I mean, I, I don't, I, it's, and it's, it's just shocking to me how this rather obvious, um, it, it has been shocking to me how, how this rather obvious ploy, um, no one in the media is willing to call it out. And I think they know it. I don't think it's, I don't think it's that they, they don't know it. Because a lot of people have come has have realized that that's what's happening, and the it's not a particularly sharp insider intellect that allows them to see this. It's just like saying the obvious, being a, a willing and able to say the obvious, which is I think what the media can't do. Right? They've they've got to play. They've obviously got to um, use the China scapegoat better than the opponent. I think is kind of what you were describing. Right? Is like. If everyone's availing themselves of this, you know, this political, uh, it's a political gangbang, you know, and if you don't use it, uh, you're going to allow your opponent to use it against you. Mm-hmm. And so I guess a lot of this stuff seems internal to some extent, but one of the things that I think COVID has, um, and I haven't really, we haven't really potted about, I haven't talked to any one on like a pod or video about this, but I've been thinking about more and more is I think something that COVID uh, sort of like un- sort of uh, 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 unveiled is that the American economy, I don't think is very productive at all. 
and I, I think that that's a uh, something that that's a major illusion that even a lot of like left like a lot of people in America have. Like as an example, I was I was reading um, this book by Thomas Frank, and he was he's like sort of like a um, kind of like a Roosevelt type uh, liberal. Uh, you would call them leftists now, and he was saying how that since like the night since like 1992 or something like that, uh, the American worker, the productivity of the American worker has sort of skyrocketed, but they so so but but they haven't shared in any of that wealth in terms of wages, right? That's that's 90 percent of America, and I've, I've looked at that sentence and I'm like. What does he mean by productivity has skyrocketed? In the next sentence, he said, that means that American workers are making more stuff per worker than ever before. <laughs> and I was just like, I, I don't know. I know that's what productivity <laughs> productivity is supposed to mean, right? But I just don't I just don't buy it anymore. I just think that the way we count GDP is counting a lot of parasitic activity. activity. Yeah. Yeah. It's not really productive, it's parasitic. Let, let me ask and, you this. Let me ask you this, right? Like, let's say, like, let's say a uh, uh, Facebook software engineer goes off and writes a couple lines of code somewhere that results in like a 0.1% higher conversion rate on the ads that they show out to like their, like, call it like 1.8 billion users of like the newsfeed, right? Um, that's a 0.1, like let's say their core conversion rate was once like 3.6%, now it's 3.7%, right? So that's like a, that like 0.1% increase is almost like a, what, like a, like a three or 4% increase on like Facebook's overall revenue off that one product. Um, that product, you know, call it, let's say it generates $20 billion a year in revenue, right? So a three or 4% increase in, in revenue is like 60 million bucks, right? Um, per year, uh, I'm sorry, no, $600 million per year. Um, so that one engineer's couple lines of code created $600 million in productivity. But for the average user, is a 0.1% in the increase in the rate at which they click on ads, like, useful? <laughs> no, and it probably is just a form of appropriation of the, pro- of the uh, profits created along the chain, yeah. right? yeah. Uh, it's just like okay, instead of advertising on television, I'll advertise on Facebook. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's a it's a form of rent seeking, right? I think so. Yeah, and and I think like what what's happened, and you you're hitting the nail kind of on the head, is that a lot of rent seeking is masked as productivity. Exactly. That yeah, I think that's what's what I'm getting at. And like, let's take the smartphones. One like a huge driver. I don't think if it's I don't know if it's huge, but a large driver of GDP, for example, would be. Um, the endless series of lawsuits that were waged between Samsung and Apple and Google over technology related to the smartphone. There were huge number of cases involving thousands of lawyers all across the country charging between $600 and $1,200 an hour you know, for over a decade, well over a decade, fighting over patents uh, of the smartphone. Now, whether, whether any of that was of any use to anybody, I highly doubt yeah. But it probably, because I think these legal services all probably counted into GDP. 
it, it, it's totally messed up because everyone who's in that industry, who's doing like patent law and stuff like that will say like, oh yeah, we need to like, we, we need more people like us that to encourage like entrepreneurs to create IP and for new innovation. And then I turn around and think like, I, I've taught, I talk to entrepreneurs like for a living. Right. Um, and, and I haven't met a single entrepreneur who tells me like, yeah, the reason I want to create my company is because like of the awesome like patent law system that we have. Right. 99% of them, if they ever bring up patent law at all, think of it as this ungodly abomination that like actually constrains innovation. Right. But somehow and, and, like, and like 99.9% of patents go to the company, not to the inventor. Exactly. Exactly. So, so. It's, 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 it's kind of bullshit. Um, yeah, but I think that that's a thing where, you know, we're still talking about um, productivity and just kind of accepting the sort of like plain vanilla reading of it is like, oh, yeah, an economy is this thing whereby like we create widgets in factories and productivity is higher than ever. That means the, the average American worker is creating more widgets per worker, you know, and it's a very simplistic view of GDP and growth and um and productivity, what it even means. And so I thought that that line in that book just wasn't right. And I feel like getting that sentence wrong colored the rest of the book for me in terms of like his describing like, you know, what happened to the American middle class and how the working class got sold out. Um, and, and uh, you know, and there were other, there's a lot of other stuff that's, that, that's, that's um, people are just now starting to write about like, there was this book that that made kind of a minor splash in the U.S. and the U.K. called Bullshit Jobs by David Graeber. Mm -hmm. And it was this sort of like sociological, not study, but sociological investigation into the phenomenon of like the American and British, well, Western uh, white collar office worker pretty much not really knowing what their job is, not really doing anything during the day and feeling incredibly guilty and anxious about it. And that this is a huge phenomenon of people like basically saying, I don't know really what my job is and I'm not sure what I do and I don't really do anything anyway. And somehow these people are driving productivity in America, right? Um, they're the sort of like professional managerial class that's supposedly driving productivity and making America the most dynamic, competitive economy, blah, blah, blah. And I can't help to think, but that a lot of these ideas have become totally overloaded and are now, in fact, obscuring uh, a, a, a more disturbing reality, which is that America, for the most part, doesn't produce anything anymore. It's mostly about consumption. It's, 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 it, it depends on what you think of as production, right? Like... Like here, here, here's actually, so, so, so there's a, there's an economist at the university of Virginia and I'm God, I'm blanking on his name now, but like he basically like did an analysis of like the capital intensity ratio of a bunch of different companies like in the world. Right. And he just said like, look, us companies like by and large prefer to, um, prefer to be capital light. So they prefer like asset light to be to be asset light, and the market rewards companies which are asset light, right? And a lot of productivity gains and growth is concentrated in companies that are asset light. Um, and what that kind of means in practice is that like fixed asset investment in the United States is like frowned upon because like corporate executives, you know, their their compensation is tied to stock. 
So if the market is telling them that like, hey, if I go spend a billion dollars on a factory in the United States, like it's going to weigh on my stock price, then they're not going to do it, right? They're going to think of like asset light ways to grow the business. So that means like investing more in sales and marketing. That means creating more and more like IP rights for them to like license out to other people or like, uh, or, uh, you know, using outsourcing or offshoring strategies to like find people, other people, other companies to shoulder that like manufacturing capital investment, right? Um, like that, that seemed to me like very interesting because like, if you look at like a lot of technological progress elsewhere in the world, it's driven by very capital intensive conglomerates, right? Like look at South Korea and Samsung, Samsung spends, Samsung is about to spend $35 billion this year on CapEx alone, right? Um, and, or look at like Germany, right? Where a lot of like productivity, you know, is driven by large industrial conglomerates as well, right? Um, that just isn't the case in the US. Uh, and that's, I think that that's like something that, that like people that I, I can't, I'm not a good enough economist to like actually figure out why, but it just seems like a phenomenon that might explain like kind of what, what you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, it's like, you talk a lot about, um, computer chips and, you know, I think about a company like arm, mm -hmm. uh, in the UK and they don't really make anything. They don't really make it. I mean, they, well, well, they our, our, put out our, some reference designs and yeah. they have uh, a copyright on the instruction set. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, it's the companies that, that have been in the news lately, like TSMC mm -hmm. or SMIC, or I guess Samsung does it too, the, the actual fabrication of physical chips. And I think now that, um, now that we're talking about like physical production, meaning... We're getting to a point now where, you know, we've identified microchips as like, you know, a strategic sector. And now we care about who can actually make the physical chip, not just who's going to get paid the most profits out of the, you know, the marketing, the creation and, and production and marketing and selling of the chip, not just who has the lion's share of the profits, but literally like who can actually make the chip, mm -hmm. right? Because at the end of the day, that's what really matters. Um, when it comes when it comes down to it, and now that everyone's talking about who can make chips, no one's talking about ARM, right? No one's talking about x86. No one's talking about you know whatever. Well, People I mean, are talking about like, TSMC and 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 things like that. I, I mean, I mean, I, I think like chip designs themselves are not like like there there's there's like a difference between like oh like I've created a good chip design and I don't have the billion dollars sitting around to go and like build spin up a fab line to go and like build it. Versus like I've created a good chip design and I can get that billion dollars or $10 billion and, uh, and, and, and go and like fab it, but I'm just not going to, because like, I would rather, you know, like that I can't, I can't like essentially like it, it, the, my return on equity would just sink by way too much. Right. Like if I did that, right. Like there's a difference. And, and also like the other, the other analogy is like, um, I would give you is, is like specifically within that chip industry. Like um, the the most egregious example of this is Qualcomm, not necessarily ARM, right? Like Qualcomm, Qualcomm had this funny as a company. Like Qualcomm was in a situation where it was suing its three largest customers uh, in 2018. Um, and you're you're a lawyer, so you should understand like actively litigating your largest customers is generally not a recipe for business success. 
right. activating, actively litigating all of them at the same time over kind of the same issues uh, in, ca- in a case where they can like all submit amicus briefs like for, for each other is an even like worse, like, like harbinger of success, right? Well, that, that, that's, that's in a normal market, in a normal market. Yeah. Yes, yes. That would be true. And, and by the way, it's three largest co- customers were Apple, Samsung, and Huawei, right? These are not like small companies, right? They're giants, right? And, and they, they're, and, and you peel back, like, why are they doing this strategy? And you start realizing, oh my God, like Qualcomm is just a gigantic patent troll, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the whole business is just a patent troll. Yes. Yes. They're, 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 um, they're landlords. Well, it's like the, the analogy I would give is like, they're like, um, they're like Bob Ross, you know, that like P- PBS painter guy, Bob yeah, Ross yeah. with the funny, uh-huh. they're like Bob Ross in a world where any painting with a tree on it is worth $10 million. Yeah. So they teach people how to paint trees and then they, they're like, Oh, anybody who paints a tree is like, you know, like is worth a lot of money. And then they go and tell all the people who paint trees that, uh, since I invented like painting trees, you got to pay me a lot of money. Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I, I think like patent, the patent system is not something that captures the public imagination, but it is basically the, like the defining business model, uh, for most of American tech and pharma is the ownership of what's called intellectual property rights. The extension of those intellectual property rights into as many foreign markets as possible, which is the basis for something for a lot of these free trade agreements. The real clause that America cares about, we don't we don't really care about tariffs on beans and shit, right? Like we can have they like to they they like to talk about like this. Oh, we have this huge schedule about tariffs on food products and how how much they work with the American farmer to decide this. But the real action is in the extension of the intellectual property regime internationally, because the U.S. is by far the largest patent holder, and so in the digital realm, when we look at when we look at the look at the notion of technology, um, we're the biggest landholders, mm-hmm. and we want to charge as much rent as possible uh, mm-hmm. over over the greatest amount of users. And um, is that productivity? Is that innovation? Right? Is having the biggest p- patent portfolio and amassing it actually literally by buying patents, right? Or having a whole like you know huge team dedicated to just filing patents on combinations of things that have never even been built before, like just you know like speculative patents, uh, is that actually innovation? And uh, you know I, I just think like there's a whole hidden character to the U.S. economy that's gotten out of control, mm-hmm. and I think technology has been overtaken by um, uh, not not tech as a whole, but but especially harder harder technologies has been so overtaken by stuff like the patent system that we don't even really know. And I think there's a lot of like rosy assumptions about what, for example, a Qualcomm really is. Yeah. That, that doesn't that, comport with reality. And, and, and the really tragic thing is like outside of like that kind of like IP driven revenue flow, there's like the other major revenue flow for like technology companies is advertising, right? Um, like Facebook and Google are by market cap, two of the five largest tech companies in the United States, right? Um, let's like, look at Google since Google is like the most egregious one. Like Google is not like, like Google's business is an advertising fed set of monopolies. Google is not one monopoly business. Google is seven monopoly businesses. It's Android, uh, which, uh, which where, where Google essentially, uh, 
owns like uh, owns the uh, Google Play services that make Android functional, right? It's uh, it's Search, where Google has like a 90, 90 to ninety five percent share. It's um, it's Maps, right? Where Google own, like has basically owns like the mapping market, uh, it, within like most of the known world. Um, it's a, uh, it's Gmail, right? It's a uh, what you call it? It's a uh, YouTube. Um, so that's like what, like five already. And then it's two more that are a little bit more hidden. It's like ads and double click, right. Which is the online, which is half of the online advertising market. And then lastly, it's, um, it's, a. am uh, blinking, God, I'm blinking on the seventh one, but anyhow, like there's like seven interrelated monopolies that like, that are, uh, that are present within like Google and, and these like, it, it's, it's kind of crazy because when you move beyond companies like Qualcomm, and say like, okay, well, like, let's not look at them. They're not the whole tech industry. Like there are companies out there that are not just like blatantly abusing like IP law to make money. You, you look at, you end up with companies like Google where like, okay, they're not abusing IP law to make money, but they just construct these giant software monopolies and just like harvest users attention and time. And, and they just tweak advertising algorithms to make money. And you start thinking, well, that's just like one form, exchanging one form of rent seeking for another, right? And neither of those are necessarily that great at like, you know, driving real productivity in the economy. Yeah. And, and, and it just, uh, as, I mean, it spikes their stock price, but like you said, they're still asset light, right? So despite like collecting these massive rents, which we would call profits, but I don't think they're profits in the classic sense. I mean, those profits are not going back and being reinvested into capital that can create more wealth. Like if we, and I think that's the problem is like, I, because the U.S. Uh, economy is parasitic and, con- and, and, and mostly consumer-oriented, I think it's like, that, like a, the majority of the economy is just uh, con- uh, consumer spending at this point. Um, on that consumption side, as well as on the sort of parasitic side where people are charging rents for things like intellectual property or, you know, um, using... Um, or, or, or factoring in stuff like, you know, regulatory costs, transaction costs that are imposed for the benefit of services companies, like, you know, um, like legal obviously comes to mind, but, you know, a whole host of other things, um, you know, where you would like impose a law and then a company makes money by helping companies comply with that law. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that it's, it kind of breaks the cycle of capitalist, uh, investment in that the profits that are taken do not are not taken in a system where there's some clear uh, opportunity to reinvest in to create yet more wealth. So I, I just feel like while there's a lot of money flowing around the U.S. system, I don't and there's a lot of consumption in the U.S. system. I don't think it's a particularly productive system, and I think that's why mm-hmm. the U.S. doesn't. It seems. Even though it's like a high flow economy with a ton of money and huge companies and big fortunes being amassed, it doesn't seem to be going anywhere. So, so one yeah. of my, one yeah. of my, and I'll give you an example of this, right? Like one of my, uh, one of my good friends is a call it. He, he used to be a software engineer for an AI team within kind of one of like the like uh, big five U.S. tech companies, right? So very well paid person very uh very um very uh smart obviously right working on a team of very smart people 
right? And, and, and six six or seven months uh, ago, you know, as as we were just chatting about you know COVID, you know, working from home, et cetera, et cetera, you know, he he just casually threw in a line like, I haven't written a line of code in about ten months. And I just I was like, what? I was like, wait, wait, wait you're 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 a uh-huh. sweet. You're you're getting paid. His I think he was getting paid seven hundred and twenty thousand dollars a year, um, at some point. And I was just like, you're you're making this much money. You know, you you have like he had like one point five million dollars in like stock options, or in RSUs, right? And and I was just like, what? Like, wait a second. Like, you're being paid this much money, um, and you're not like, what do you do? And he's like, well, I, I collect like requirements, um, you know, and, and we, we debate proposals and I translate them into like something that like, you know, the management at, at my company can understand. Um, and I just start thinking like, okay, so, so, you know, it's like that scene in office space. Like, what would you say you do here? Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And, and then I started and, and I kind of zoomed out and I'm like, well, there must be somebody on your you know, team that's like, you know, doing coding or like, uh, or like, you know, doing some changes to the product. He's like, no, he's like, we, we're a team of like 15 people. And all we, all we're really doing is just like, you know, like debating things and like talking about things, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And, and I was just like, wait, wait, wait. So you're 15 people. I started doing mental math, 15. And let's assume the average salary is like half a million. So that's like what, like seven and a half million bucks a year in human OPEX. Um, and, and that's being spent, like keeping these people, like just like, you know, just doing what, like essentially making slides. Right. And, and these are extremely brilliant people. Um, half that team has PhDs in like, you know, in either uh, in, in like essentially algorithm design or like computer science. Another half of that team has graduate. The other half of the team has graduate other graduate degrees. Um, they're all uh, they're all like extremely bright people who went through a filtering process. Oh, that team of 15 people, by the way, had four international math Olympiad gold or silver medalists. Right. These are like people, like people who are literally the creme de la creme in terms of like intelligence. And they're being kept there to go and like suggest these minor little tweaks on a giant, giant like advertising engine. And I was just like, this is, this is insane. Like in any sort of sane society, people like you would be out there like curing cancer or something, right? Or like divide, like thinking about protein folding or thinking about like, or thinking about like building rockets to like get us to Mars or something. But all you're doing is just like suggesting these trying to like drive like drive like these minor tweaks to like an advertising engine. And I was just like, this is this is this is this is madness. Like this is kind of the root of like low productivity. It's when when talent is so grossly misallocated. Yeah, I mean, the other thing is like you wonder if a because AI is like one of those hypiest um, technologies around and um I've, I've no, I think, I feel like the hype is particularly like in financial markets and, and people in like equity analyst expectations of like how big the AI market's going to be and what a big impact it's going to have is probably overstated by quite a bit. And an example of that is the, is maybe a little bit old now, but like the huge IPO that, that Uber had and, built on the promise that they would have like self-driving cars self-driving cars are just around the corner right self-driving cars are around the corner and um i think that that was the you know and actually like both tesla and uber i believe were uh sued by uh shareholders uh for for uh fraud for for having been a little bit too rosy and not disclosing the real risks uh behind relying on ai as like a future profit center right 
like the self-driving taxi was not right around the corner. And uh, I think it's an interesting way into trying to see what's really going on in terms of how like the capitalist system seems to have ceased to function. And uh, I'm just starting to realize this now. Uh, and maybe a lot of other people have seen it this way. I just never read their book or whatever. Uh, but if you think, if you boil it down, like what, why is capitalism both a thing and why is it controversial? And I think the reason capitalism is controversial is because it is, is basically a system of the gross misappropriation of wealth. Like we have a system where, you know, uh, one man can be in control of, you know, call it a trillion dollars worth of wealth, uh, you know, in, in, in one company. Uh, and I think Amazon might be like a close to it. How, how, I don't know what his market cap is. Is there a $2 trillion company? I'm sure there will be very soon. And this, this is a, this is an arrangement in terms of inequality and the misappropriation of wealth to one single person or to one single firm that would be totally unjustifiable any under any under any circumstance any ethical system it wouldn't make any sense except for capitalism in which you're saying well the reason they have a trillion or 2 trillion dollars in wealth is because everyone voluntarily gave it to that person in in one form or another because this person is the magic person who can turn one trillion into two trillion or can turn two trillion into four trillion. And that's the justification under capitalism is to say, okay, I know that it makes no sense that I have this much wealth. But the reason I have this much wealth is because I alone or I and just a few others are the only ones that can create even more wealth out of the wealth that you've given us. And when that system breaks down and when these people cannot produce uh real wealth then i think like what you you're, you're kind of seeing this uh sort of scam phase like it's i feel like it's sort of almost uh a post-capitalist phase where the system of growth of growth driven of growth justified misappropriation of wealth i.e like investment has gone off a cliff where the the growth engine has basically stalled in america and I'm not even sure that that's a bad thing. It's just a thing. It might be a function of having taken all the current technologies to their sort of logical endpoints, right? We don't really maybe not have a lot more technological innovation left ahead of us, um, which is not an inherently bad thing. But I think we still need that story in order for us to not address inequality because we, need, because we still need a story as to why these people have a trillion dollars. Yeah. And the story yeah. is like, look, they're working on the stuff. It's going to blow your mind. They're not we're we literally are on the verge of discovering uh, genetic immortality. We are on the verge of discovering uploading your brain into the computer so you can live as a digital god. We are v right there. We're robotics are going to take over every aspect of physical labor. Human beings won't have to work anymore. It's literally right around the corner. And it's a constant it's a it's a lie and it's a it's a scam i think because none of that stuff is going to come true like any time in the near future or it, in my opinion the distant future and but it's being used i think to continue to justify the you know the the obscene concentration of wealth into the hands of like a technological elite and i think that's kind of what's what's going on here in america 
And with China, uh, I think it's a little bit different because China's still a relatively poor country if you look at per capita GDP. They still just have like a base, lot of basic growth baked in that we know is possible. They just have to do it. Uh, and so I feel like the story is quite a bit different in China because there actually is a growth story there. They, they really are growing at 7% or 6% a year. And, and that's a real number in terms of, you know, you can measure it in terms of like how much concrete they're using or how much energy inputs they're taking and stuff like that. So I think it's a tale of two economies. Yeah, it's, 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 very, it's very good that you, you're, you're, you're segueing this over to China because I think, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding of like um, of Chinese productivity. Um, and, and there are people out there who, who will say like, hey, like China is massively, you know, dependent on fixed asset investment to drive growth. It's massively, you know, uh, it, it, you know it's, uh, it's essentially like half of its growth figures are fake, you know, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, and, and, and I think that the, the distinction is like, there's still a lot of white space in China uh, where essentially fixed asset investment can and does like create real economic productivity. Um, whereas in the U.S., uh, people have essentially constructed like almost like barriers to that. Um, like giving giving you an example, like uh, you know, like uh, didn't didn't New York City try building a subway recently? Yeah, the Second Avenue line. It took. Yeah. It was just insane how expensive it was. And it was like three stations. <laughs> it, it's it's ridiculous. I can't believe they even call it a line. It's more of an extension of an existing line into three stations up to the uh, Upper East Side. Ah, okay. Okay. How much How much did it cost? Billions. Bill, uh, it's like many, many billions. Um, I can look it up. But yeah, many, many billions. Okay. That's... that's... Uh-huh. That's, that's, that's very, see, see, that's like, that's where it gets like very, very interesting, right? Because like, if you started like unpacking like the cost structure, it's not like the tunneling machine is any, any more expensive. The labor can be a little bit more expensive, but not that much, right? You start like unpacking like the project costs and you're just like, oh, wow, there's like, there's a lot of engineering studies, a lot of enviro studies that are happening. Um, Heck of a lot of like, uh, there's a lot of like, uh, you know, workshops with like the local residents that are happening. There's so much grift that's like associated with this project. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. Right. Mm-hmm. And it, it balloons like the costs up like 30, 40%. You know, that, that like, I think that that's like, there's, there's a lot, there's a huge cottage industry in the U S that, uh, that, that has sprung up around, um, sort of like, uh, any attempt to like invest for the public good. Right. And, and channel that investment into like private pockets, right? Um, high speed rail in California, even more extreme example, right? Um, you know, there was like a design committee in California that's been looking at high speed rail at the cost of like $150 million a year for the last 22 years, right? And uh, I think the amount of high speed rail in California um, in, in like in Cali is, is, is like very little. Um, it's like a, like they ended up like laying laying some uh laying some track from one part of like nowhere like essentially one empty spot of california to another <laughs> so yeah, i mean i've i've long suspected that that actually cable companies are behind a lot of the uh apparent american aversion to 5g networks ah i because ah. I, I i want i i think they're worried that 5g might break their monopoly on home broadband 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Five G, five G probably is gonna is gonna gonna impact that, and you know, like there is gonna be, um, you know, like the uh, which com- cable company Comcast uh, did did cite you know uh, did cite like five uh, G infrastructure as a threat to their like business model, right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, and um, yeah, it's it's a, it's a whole it's a whole host of things that I think are just hold uh, that I. I, I I just want to I just think that the the there's a quality it's not just a quantitative difference I think that there's so much comparing apples to apples between U.S. and Ch- Chinese uh, economies and we look at very abstracted numbers like productivity wage growth uh, top line growth uh, total corporate debt uh, all this stuff right. And we think we're comparing an American economy that is sort of self-contained to an extent with does some dabbles in trade, but for the most part, it's a self-contained economy uh, versus China, which is a trade-based economy, but we also see as sort of like essentially self-contained two national economies, and we're comparing them. And I don't really think that's what's going on. I feel like the U.S. is a just totally qualitatively different beast. And um, now that... Uh, trade has been severely disrupted, that um, the U.S. financial system seems to be at a kind of terminal end or, or some, kind of, some kind of secular end here that is, is characterized by uh, this unbelievably large spike in the monetary supply, um, totally without precedent in U.S. history. Uh, so huge amount of money floating in the system, interest rates that are at zero, that um, the Federal Reserve is basically saying we're as long as we can get away with it, we're gonna, we're going to never raise these interest rates. Uh, basically, just completely flooding the world in U.S. dollars. Um, I feel like it's coming to some kind of secular end, and. Uh, Either we're in store for some kind of huge recession. Uh, you know, you and I had talked about that um, that video by the Morgan Stanley uh, economist who said that 20% of American companies, uh, U.S. listed companies, are technically insolvent; they can't service their debt. Mm-hmm. So if so, if the uh, you know the Federal Reserve's continued monetary support were to ease up, we could see fully 20% of companies go under. Right. Um, I mean, that's, that's the kind of alarm bell that people at places like Morgan Stanley are ringing. Uh, and on the other hand, uh, you know, they could keep the life support on and just continue to exponentially grow the number of us dollars in circulation, in which case people are wondering how long can the us dollar remain a valuable asset? If that keeps happening, are we going to get hyperinflation? Are we going to have, are we going to start seeing the dollar? become you know less valuable uh over time it's something that people probably haven't experienced in their lifetime uh it's where am i going with this to constantly just look at china as an apples versus apples thing and say how do we compare favorably versus how do some of the numbers not compare favorably i think is really missing the real story which is a qualitative difference where i think the u.s is in a lot of fucking trouble so that's so, my that's my belief. So there's a there's two numbers that I actually kind of track for this. Um, and uh, 
and and I, I don't know if like anybody else like really tracks this out there in like the financial space, but you know, I, I look at I looked at two things. First, the cumulative current account balance, and then the uh, which is the uh, kind of like trade the, trade deficit. Yeah, yeah, the cumulative trade deficit mm-hmm. like over time, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then the second one is the uh, change in the net international investment position. Um, okay. So the net international investment position is is essentially like the U.S. balance sheet, for lack of a better term. It's like what mm. the U.S. owns abroad versus what foreigners own in the U.S. Oh, I see. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. So the net international investment position right now is negative $13.9 trillion, right? Meaning that the U.S. owns $13.9 trillion in foreign assets over what? No, le- less. It's, it, oh, the, less. Okay. Yeah. So the U.S. owns... Thirteen point nine trillion less abroad than foreigners own in the U.S. Oh, I see. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So we're attracting a lot of uh, capital into the U.S. Yes. We're the other way of saying is this: we're, we're a net cre- we're a net creditor nation. Okay. Um, we're the world's largest net creditor nation. Um, as a percentage of GDP, that's negative sixty five percent of GDP. Um, the U.S. has never had a net international position investment position this low as a percent of GDP ever. Mm-hmm. Um. And, uh, and, and, and kind of the, to put things in perspective, there are only three like developed countries or upper high income countries with a worse percentage than us. They are Portugal, Ireland, Greece, um, Portugal, Ireland, and Greece, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and all it, Euro countries and, and not just any Euro countries. They're the pigs. Remember the mm-hmm. pigs that were like yeah. creating so much trouble for Euro in yeah. Europe? Yeah. yeah. So essentially mm-hmm. economic basket cases. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's a, it's, it's the, uh, it's, it's kind of mind boggling, but it wasn't always like this. So up until 2010, the U S actually didn't have that high of a, you know, net international uh, of a deficit in the net international investment position, in spite of the fact that it had a very large, uh, negative cumulative current account balance. So, so, so we were sending a lot of cash abroad because of the of the trade deficit, yes. but somehow, but it wasn't coming back. Yeah, somehow it wasn't either wasn't coming back, or mm-hmm. we were earning more on our investments abroad than um, than foreigners were earning on their investments in the U.S. Mm-hmm. But that's like flipped. That dynamic dynamic is completely flipped since 2010. Um, mm-hmm. Now, like every one dollar of aggregate of of like trade deficit creates like a two to six dollar fluctuation in the net international investment position. And that's been constant since 2010. Mm-hmm. So, so like that, um, what that means is that the U S the U S bubble, the U S capital markets bubble is kind of like the only thing that's like sustaining our ability to draw in imports from abroad or sustaining global demand for dollars. Right. Mm-hmm. That's where it gets very scary because that's, that's probably like why the federal reserve is so cagey about, you know, lifting interest rates too much, right? Mm-hmm. Or letting, you know, letting the air out of the asset market. Because if the asset market really went, demand global demand for dollars would start sliding. And if global demand for dollars started sliding, then the standard of living that the United States has would drastically decrease. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... It's it's like no one really knows, right? Because it's I feel like this is the this is a point where I'm not sure there's like relevant history 
in modern times to re- to really draw upon. Like it, it isn't like this happened sometime in the '90s. What happened in the '90s? Like this is this is some kind of like you know. I think once the Fed has gotten to this point where it can't function in the normal sense, it's it's basically uh, maxed out all of its levers. It can't drive interest rates lower. Uh, it can only now it, it it can't really you know do more in terms of like you know manipulating long term interest rates either. They almost have to. They're just buying corporate bonds now. Yep. Right. I mean, how how much how further down the road before they just become like Bank of Japan and they just start buying equities as well? <laughs> right. I mean, that's not going to be far off if something really bad happens. You wonder, I mean, if there is a major equity correction, if what you're saying is true and they believe that and you would expect then the Federal Reserve to start buying equities. Yep. You know, something really insane like that. Yep. yep. Um, and and, and here's, uh, here's, by the way, here's another fact for you, right? 47% of the S&P's gains since 2018 have been concentrated in nine, co- in, uh, I'm sorry, uh, how many companies? Uh, in, in, uh, in, uh, in nine companies since 2018. Mostly NASDAQ tech stocks. <laughs> exactly. Apple alone accounting for 14%. Wow. Yeah. So like basically like now, now, you, now, now the tech war, by the way, is it, it, it makes sense. Because like if the tech, if like if like the equity appreciation in tech in big tech started like a reversing in a meaningful way, then um then 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 a lot of other wheels would come off the bus, mm-hmm. and and you know I don't I think it's a matter of like national survival, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I wonder if the big mega story here is is actually not a fight for growth, uh. And I don't think there's really anything the U.S. can do to stop China from growing um, because a lot of that growth is not dependent on access to, like, critical technologies. I mean, I know you guys cover a lot of, like, the differences between, say, doing a 7 nanometer process chip versus a 3 nanometer. And I know that has to do with the ability to implement the highest end software on the phone and your ability to do augmented reality, you know, augmented reality and or whatever. But I, I got to feel that at the bottom, though, at bottom, like it doesn't really matter that much to mm-hmm. China's overall growth story, whether they can do three nanometer or not. And I'm not sure that the U.S. embargo on, you know, Huawei accessing chips is really that big a threat to that growth story either. Well, it, 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 it's, it, it, it's, mm-hmm. it's really about maintaining platform dominance, right? Mm-hmm. Because like the fear isn't about like keeping China out of three nanometer or seven nanometer forever. It's just delaying them by a couple of years, so that uh, so that U.S. U.S. platforms can then shift their source of technological dominance to something else, right? Um, and and the reason the platforms have to be dominant is because that's like the root of the value of all these giant tech companies, right? Like Apple is nothing without. You know iOS and without like the the play without the uh, with, without the Apple Apple um, the App Store right mm-hmm. um, and Google is nothing without those six or seven interrelated monopolies all of which are giant platforms right um, Microsoft is nothing without Windows right uh, you know and 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 that and Facebook is nothing without the social network right U.S. companies are platform companies China is growing in is starting to build platforms of its own. Right. That's what the U.S. starts viewing as a threat. 
um, they they have to use those platforms to dominate the tech, like dominate like users around the world, right? And they get very scared if like Chinese companies start you know rolling out their own platforms into the world, um, and and they really don't want that to happen because that'll that'll like really that'll that'll make a, that'll mess with their business models to a very very severe degree. Yeah, but I, I guess what I'm wondering is, is the story really about Chinese competitors wanting to replicate the profitability of American tech companies, uh, which I'm sure they do, obviously, because they're, you know, they're, they're profit-driven companies. But I'm saying at like the higher level of state planning and stuff, it seems like what they really care about is the supply chain. and mm -hmm. They care about whether... real productivity, broad-based productivity. Right? Yeah. Look, yeah. At what, look at what they did to Ant Financial, by the way, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like yeah. Ant was trying to turn itself into a secure, Ant was trying to turn itself into like countrywide financial <laughs> right. and, and turn itself into like a securitization shop for consumer loans. Um, and they were saying like, we'll be a financial platform that way. Right. And then China was like, no, no, we're, we're not. It gonna found the super, it found, it discovered, Jack Ma discovered the uh, super poisoned power up mushroom. Yeah, exactly. Of toxic lending. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And China was like, no, we're not, we're not, gonna, not eating the mushroom. <laughs> yeah. You, we're going to, we're going to make you, we're going to pull a Heimlich maneuver on you. You're going to throw up. <laughs> yeah, 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 don't do it. That, don't do it. Yeah. You're going to throw up that mushroom and you're going to get back to like doing, doing other things with your business. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh -huh. um, and I think that that's, that's it. That's, that's industrial policy. Right. Like, yeah. see, that's like the difference, the, the difference between the U S and China is that like China's industrial policy tries to emphasize broad-based productivity growth um right. real productivity and like the u.s and u.s industrial policy emphasizes like like monopolistic rent seeking mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. i agree with that 100 percent. and i think that uh, america's actions are that of a monopolist and they're trying to cripple a competitor mm -hmm. you know and biden's going around talking about oh we're going to be extreme competition extreme competition i'm like you're not competing what you're doing is uh, kneecapping uh, a competitor before they can even present their wares. Yeah. And that's not com competition. That's called monopoly. That's not, you know, doing your best in the free skate. That's called going and hiring Jeff Galuli to kneecap uh, Nancy Kerrigan. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that's it, not competition. It, it, that's, that's being Tanya Harding. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's Tanya, Tanya Harding. We're Tanya Harding of global capitalism right now. That's not extreme competition. I mean, she might have tried to use that defense, but nobody was buying it. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 So. yeah. Competition is about trying to offer the best, like improve yourself so that you can offer the best thing out to the market. Right. Like, yeah, not destroy your competitor, destroy your competitor. So you, you look, you look relatively better. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, no, I, I think that's it. I, I, I think that, um, I think that really does describe a lot of the differences that I see. And I think that that has spillovers, not just in terms of like corporate profits or, you know, these abstract depersonalized numbers that we see reported on a quarterly or monthly basis, what are the employment numbers? Where did the S and P five hundred go this month? What was G what is top line GDP growth? What does it look like? I, I think that uh, more important than that, and I and I and I get the feeling that to some extent Chinese planners understand this better than American planners is that the focus on actual productivity, meaning a material economy, an economy that actually produces the things that people need, like the ability to produce masks. The ability to produce, uh, you know, medical equipment 
and to have an economy that can quickly and rapidly shift uh, to produce the material goods that, you know, not just the economy needs, but that the society needs at any given point in time, that the focus on that to me has knock on effects in terms of not just GDP growth and other abstract numbers, but also quality of life. Mm-hmm. Do our work, do workers feel like they have a real purpose or job, like a job that has any sort of meaning or function? Um, the, 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 the notion of work itself, is this like contributing to society or am I simply my boss's bitch and mm-hmm. things like that, which is why, you know, I do think that there are, there's a spiritual dimension to economics yeah, that's yeah, yeah. being heavily overlooked. So, in the so, United so, States. so the other, the other thing is like, like, I, I think people sometimes undercount the Socio sociological value of the assembly line, right? The assembly line allowed for unskilled people to contribute into the industrial economy, right? Especially the electrified assembly line, right? Um, it meant as like a re- as like kind of somebody with a sixth grade education, you could stand in one spot, screw bolts onto something, right, and still like massively increase your productivity relative to what you're once capable of doing. And then like a team of a hundred of you could start making cars, right? Like in lots of cars, not just like small amounts of them. Right. And that like, that, that rewrote the social contract in some ways. Right. That like allowed for like that, that allowed that, that allowed for like some degree of like flattening of inequality. And, and I think what's going on within like the information economy, within the tech economy, is there is no equivalent to the industry, to the assembly line. Instead of the assembly line, you have algorithmic management, right? So you have like the gig economy, like the algorithms that run Uber drivers around, right? That's like the, that's the equivalent, but it's the exact opposite. Instead of like, instead of empowering the unskilled worker, they disempower the unskilled worker, Right. They make it impossible for them to actually even know how much they're getting paid. They make it impossible for them to know where they're going. They make it impossible for them to determine their own working hours. They make it impossible for them to like determine their own productivity. And and that like that like sort of sudden like increase in like structural inequality from a technology perspective, like that is underappreciated. Nobody really talks about it. Andrew Yang doesn't talk about it. Andrew Yang talks about UBI as a solution to it. But like he doesn't talk about like the root cause, which is that all of a sudden a bunch of people are like permanently locked out of like the new economy. Right. And you have these giant platforms running around monopolizing anything or everything. And everybody else is just kind of a Uber driver or an Amazon warehouse worker, uh, you know, kind of stuck on these giant like neo feudal states. They're essentially like digital serfs. Right. Yeah. I, yeah. And, um, and I think that's why the the American left seems to be pretty much totally incapable of even doing the minimum. Like Joe Biden promised, he promised with without any uncertain terms that you know he would support fifteen dollar minimum wage. That if the Democrats won, they would get there would you will see a fifty. We will get a fifteen dollar minimum wage. Now, obviously, that's not going to happen. No. Um, and even there if there is, is a, even if there is a $15 minimum wage, what's going to happen to all those unskilled workers anyway? They're just going to get automated, right? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, that's exactly my point is that even <laughs> I mean, 
whether that's good policy or not is besides the point. What I'm saying is that even even any sort of like rudimentary political movement, no matter how popular, that's an extremely popular uh, demand. Uh, you know, the, the the elites aren't going to cave to it. You know why? Because, like you said, the, the workers don't hold any power anymore. Because once you've taken the shop floor away, they're not intimidating anymore. Yeah. Right. There's yeah. no there's no power there. I mean, I think the the shop floor and the factory is a scary place. I think workers in a factory are not, and this is and this is another misconception that I think is doing the American worker a lot of harm is the xenophobia that we that we introduce into the way we view the Chinese worker as being hyper exploited, oppressed, slave labor. They're all caged and if they if they're not if they're let out of their cages, they're gonna jump over this fence because they're just you know, and that's why that's why they can outcompete us. And that's just not true. Because if you look and it doesn't take much to see, wages of the Chinese workers have been rising steadily while wages of American workers have been stagnant and receding. Mm-hmm. So they're getting something. I mean, so there something's happening over there where they're getting paid more money. So I don't think it's just a simple matter of, oh, they're caged, they're not allowed to leave. You know, uh, you know, I think that there's a vibrant, de- there's a lot of demand that if you don't like where you're working here, you go, you go down the street and work for the competitor. Yeah. Um, and so wages are rising in China. I don't think it's a simple story of slave labor or the, you know, the Chinese labor that has lower standards of living and lower demands and is just more complacent. I, mean, I don't think that's true at all. I don't think these people have met working Chinese people and what Chinese people are really like. They're pretty fucking rowdy people. Yeah. I wouldn't want to be a manager of Chinese workers. Uh uh-uh. uh. <laughs> I wouldn't that's not a job. I don't have the stomach for that job. Yeah. You know yeah. What I mean? yeah. Yeah. So um I mean, I, I, I have you seen the video of like this there's this video of this like factory owner who like in the middle he, he's like facing down like thirty or some forty workers and they're like angry because like they're like the paychecks were late or something and like oh, one guy just calmly walks up to him douses him in gasoline and lights him on fire oh jesus christ yeah yeah, yeah. i mean that's that's like that's what i mean like the chinese workers are not like disempowered right they're they're it's fright they're frightening like <laughs> yeah. you know like so, um, so i don't so, think I, I wonder if you think that in, in fact like some of the um the you know the reputation of the Chinese state being extremely rep- um, oppressive or repressive is in fact a reaction to uh, in, in, in reaction to um, the Chinese laborer. No, it's it's I, I don't think it I don't think it's like uh, I, I don't think it's it's a reaction to that because most of the repression is not directed at like industrial workers. It's directed mm. at at farmers who don't want to sell their land. Like, oh, that's I like see. the most common like and mm-hmm. and. And like a lot of that, like uh, a lot of that, I think is determined that like seeming repression in that case is is because of like because like the farmer doesn't have it, it's not a free market for their land, right? Like so, the farmer feels cheated, right? So so that's that's like kind of one quirk, and even that's like been dying down a lot, right? Like that that kind of like that kind of like uh, what I call like large scale repression that's like been dying down a lot, and even like even like in, in China like the the way like the other thing like i wanted to say is like there's this uh there's this difference in terms of like the relative status of like different kinds of work in the u.s and in china right like one one thing like which which pains me 
is how so many people in the U.S. who are unsuited uh, for like essentially very high, very high wage knowledge work, right? Because like you know they're 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 not they're they're they didn't they essentially by the time they're eighteen they haven't haven't spent enough uh, they they essentially aren't testing high enough on on certain subjects in order to do that they still throw themselves at you know very expensive educational institutions rack up tens of thousands of dollars of debt. Um, and, and somehow believe that on the other end, there's going to be a good job waiting for them. Well, the problem is like the supply of good jobs is vastly smaller than the supply of college students. So if you weren't like, if you didn't have a platinum plated resume going into college, you're not going to have like a platinum plated job waiting for you at the other end of college. Right. Yeah. Not enough to go around. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and at the same time, there's like a whole bunch of jobs out there that are pretty lucrative. They're blue collar jobs. Um, they pay more than college jobs. Um, and nobody wants to do them because they're viewed as socially inferior, right? Like, you know, if, if you wanted to go be an electrician or if you wanted to go into manufacturing, like that's somehow viewed as being inferior to like, you know, graduating from college with a degree in comparative literature and then working, working as a barista, right? Mm-hmm. I, I gather that's got to apply to some extent in China too, though, for the next generation. No, a little one thing bit. I did, I, I will say, bit. one thing I did notice, and someone told me about this when I was in China, was that you won't. It's very hard to see any young construction workers. A lot of the construction workers mm-hmm. are starting to age out. Yep, and yep. it's getting harder and harder to find young people to actually replace them for those rather difficult jobs. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, yeah, it's it's happening. It's happening uh, slowly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, any, we're nearing an hour and a half. Any, any, like, uh, any other, uh, it's a, a bit of a meandering talk. I know we wanted to be a little bit more focused on specific topics, but I feel like there's really no way to drill into, this is another thing I've noticed about, um, these topics lately is like, I, I feel like the most meaningful talks actually are becoming more generalist talks, uh, that the era where I think, you know, it was just solely like extremely, um, like when it came to like markets and economics and finance, like, you know, in the past we would have like talking head specialists with PhDs or, or, you know, very fancy jobs at, um, uh, financial firms come out and talk in a very hyper dense technical way that nobody really understood. And the substance of what they were saying, you know, like some guy would come on the news and, and, and start talking about, um, econometric numbers that no one really quite gets. And they would talk in a way that wasn't meant for people to understand. I think what mm-hmm. it was basically saying was, trust me, bro, yeah. I know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, but I see like things have gotten to a point now where uh, the, the, the sort of like hyper-specialized knowledge is losing its power over people and people want a fucking explanation as to what's going on in a way that they can understand. And I have seen, like, at least in finance, that, and again, because fin- financial media is one that I think is still used as a trade, you know, as a trade medium, that people in finance th- itself also have had enough. And they're like, look, I don't know what's going on anymore. So let's stop pretending that we all do. Stop pretending that you know, I don't know. We all know that we don't know. So let's actually try to wrap our heads around what the fuck is going on because I've never seen this before. Right, I've never seen uh, a Fed re- a Fed this aggressive. Now, I've never seen these. I've never seen how can the stock market be at an all time high 
when we just had the worst year for GD, you know, for for uh, unemployment and GDP like ever, right? How can this be? Mm-hmm. And uh, I am in. Th- I guess I'm. I, I like that. Fa- I like like pay a lot more attention to financial media now because I feel like people have finally been liberated a little bit to be like, yeah, you know, the specialty talk and all that stuff. That is kind of a ruse. Like that's kind of meant to just give you just give you some faith that p- someone knows what's going on. And it's, it's probably not you. <laughs> it's the guy that's saying stuff that nobody understands. Uh, and I guess um, I'm starting to feel like it's time that just regular people are get more comfortable trying to think through big picture things like economics. That it's it's it, you don't need to go get uh, – you know, a PhD in some specialty field to under, to have the right to try and understand. Yeah. You know what's going on. Yeah. The, that, the link, the link between credentials and like, like social respect is falling apart. Right. Or social trust. Right. Like mm-hmm. just because you have a PhD in economics, like doesn't necessarily make, make people, it like gives you some minimal boost in like how much people trust you. It doesn't make, it doesn't make, give you that confer that massive increase in respectability. And that's probably due to social media. Honestly, because like back in the day, like if you wanted airtime on any media channel, you had to be somewhat respectable. There was a credential, there was like a gatekeeping effect, but there's that gate has fallen, right? The walls have fallen, right? Like, you know, now, now, you know, anybody, you know, anybody can like have a voice that's just as loud as like a Nobel Prize winner, right? Yeah, there's a guy on YouTube, literally his channel is called The Uneducated Economist. And he's, uh, he's a guy that literally just does videos in his like, beat up Toyota and he works in the lumber industry in the Pacific Northwest. And he talks about bond markets and stuff, you know, <laughs> metal prices. And he's, it's pretty smart. And he does it in a way where he's like, look, I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. I'm just saying that I try to think through this stuff in a way that will tr- make sense to me. And he reads a lot and he's trying to make his way through it. And I, I, I really like the fact that that exists. I, I, I really, uh, I really like it when people just are like, you know, unafraid to try and make things make sense for themselves. You know what I mean? And um, uh, yeah, when it comes to, uh, you know, when it comes to the weird shit that's going on in America right now in the stock market and uh, with respect to, um, uh, with respect to like, why why are mortgages so, you know, like your mortgage rates, you know, things like that. How come they are the way they are? Uh, the more people try and understand this, the better, because it's like this stuff really runs your life, it governs your life uh, in a much more impactful way than most things. But this is also the area that I think people have been sort of boxed out from trying to understand. Uh, it's just like, look, accept it. That's just what it is. The market has spoken. Now move on. You know. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we could we could. Um, try and get a little bit more focused next time we talk, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, about, about stuff. But I thought that was a really good, like, uh, yeah. Like the, the next time, let, like I, I was just saying, like, let's, let's, and this is for any listeners who, who, who want to like, you know, get a sneak peek, but next time let's definitely talk about like the financial interplay between China and the U S and like whether the U S can like ever really decouple from China. 
Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we were supposed to get around to that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so yeah. we'll we'll follow we'll follow with that. Um, but uh, that'll be for next time. Uh, all right, I, I try to keep these uh, around here because I think the yep. attention span can't go much further. Yep. Uh, so so thank you all for listening, and uh, see you next time. See you next time.